of the Sahara Desert and established an empire that stretched all the way from Ghana in the south to the north of Spain. While the Crusades were going on, they were fighting off Christian invaders from the north. They established what would be one of the most influential dynasties in North Africa and in the western part of the Islamic world. Today, we're going all the way over to Morocco to talk about one of the great Berber dynasties, the Almoravids. So please, stay tuned. Today on the program, we're starting a series dealing with a region of the world we haven't talked much about, and that is what's called the Maghreb. That's Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, the western part of North Africa, and it involves Spain and Portugal for much of the time. This is a very important part of the history of the Muslim world, but it's a very different historical stream and a very different narrative than the area from Egypt to Iraq which we have been talking about. So that's why we're discussing it separately. So to trace the history of this region, we're going to have to go all the way back to times we discussed many, many episodes ago, because it's really after the first Islamic dynasty, the Umayyads, remember during the first century of Islam, that we start to see this region break away from the center. The Umayyads, who ruled for basically the first hundred years of the Islamic world, were the ones who controlled everything from Spain to the borders of China, as we often say. But after them, they lasted only a hundred years, parts of the Islamic world would never come under the central control. The Abbasids, who replaced them, would never really control North Africa, and they definitely did not control Spain because that's where the Umayyads fled to and established their own emirate there. So this area really grows on its own. It grows its own dynasties, its own history, and that's why we often talk about the two great centers of Islamic culture during the Middle Ages, those being Baghdad and Cordoba in what is today Spain. So we're going to have to go back a ways to the time uh, when the Umayyads ruled. So in this part of North Africa, the indigenous inhabitants are traditionally called Berbers, and I'm sure you've heard that word before, although that, like a lot of the similar terms, is really an umbrella for a lot of different groups. Uh, It comes from the word, uh, same word we get, barbarian or barbary, Uh, This is the region of the Barbary Coast. That's where that comes from. This comes from uh, Greek, and it means really anybody who doesn't speak Greek, but it becomes a general term for barbarians. And literally, the brr-brr-brr sound is an onomatopoeia to sound like incoherent babbling, like somebody babbling. Uh, So this is one of the many words that comes from that. Now, still today, some 40 to 60% of the population of this region is Berber. But again, this is a very big umbrella term, which includes a lot of different tribes. And as we're going to see, those tribes will end up fighting against each other. Okay, so when this area was conquered by the Umayyads, who came from Syria in the late 600s, the Berbers fought against them. But eventually, they converted to Islam and assimilated with them. So by the time we get Tarek bin Ziyad's famous conquest of Spain in the year 711, his army is mostly made up of Berber soldiers. Now, despite this, they continued to have a tense relationship with the Arabs, as you would imagine. In El Andalus, which is the name for Muslim Spain at the time, the Arabs form the elite class, and since so much depends on lineage, uh, the Berbers are excluded from this. They uh, mostly form the army, but they're not the elite political leadership. 
Now, there is a creative redrawing of the Berber genealogy, however. We've seen a lot of redrawings of uh, genealogies, uh, just as they did with the Arab Bedouins, to tie them back to the Quranic prophets. In, in this retelling, the Berbers are said to have migrated all the way from the Arabian Peninsula in biblical times, but they're still not closely related to the family of the prophet and to the uh, Umayyads from Syria. So there's going to be tension, of course. Now, the first disruption comes pretty soon, and this involves an uprising by the Kharijites. This is a group we have heard about many times before. These are really the first rebels in the Muslim world. We have to go all the way back to the fourth Khalif, uh, back to the time of the Rashidun, uh, when there was, of course, the big dispute about whether Ali or Muawiyah was going to become the Khalif. Well, the Kharijites were the ones who supported neither one of these parties. In fact, um, didn't think either one should be uh, selected as the Khalif, and they broke away. And if you're familiar with Arabic roots, you know the word Kharij means outside or to go out. Yakhraj is to exit. Amakhraj is an exit. So this is the same root. So Kharijites are the people who separated themselves. So they are really the, the first rebels way back when. Uh, they're driven out of Iraq, uh, but they end up setting up in small pockets throughout the Middle East. And in fact, they end up going pretty far in, in establishing their communities in places pretty far from Iraq where they begin. In fact, one place that they end up is Morocco. And in the year 739, we're talking just about after the first century of Islam, they revolt in the city of Tangier, which is on the, um, it's on the Atlantic coast, very close to where the Atlantic and the Mediterranean meet. And so this was very early on, and we have this first rebellion. Now, it's significant out in Morocco because uh, the Umayyads had come from pretty far away, and so they don't have a large population out there. Mostly, they've established garrisons in key places. So they've established towns, they've set up places like Kairouan in Tunisia, um, but they don't control the, the vast hinterland, and they're not really interested in controlling it. They're, I mean, they're interested in controlling the trade routes, the transit routes, and so forth, um, you know, controlling the political power. They're not interested in ruling every inch of the Sahara Desert. So although they have these garrison towns, most of the interior of Morocco and Algeria were still under the control of the nomadic Berbers. And for the most part, th those people were not Muslim. No one had gone out there and tried to convert them. They weren't really that interested in it. However, once the Kharijites rebelled in Tangier, uh, they, of course, as in every place they they were, in every place they started a rebellion, they would be attacked by the central power, and so they would have to hide. And so they spread out south into the desert. Now, it's largely the Kharijites who are responsible for the conversion of most of the Berbers of the Sahara Desert. And they actually had a you know pretty effective message because the Berbers felt like outsiders in this Muslim society, and the Kharijites were definite outsiders. I mean, that was their whole uh, point. And so people coming and saying, hey, you know, we're faithful Muslims. In fact, we're, we're the true ones. We're the ones who've got it right. And, you know, we're outside the political power. I mean, we're being treated like outcasts. So we can relate to you. Uh, they had great appeal. And so they were able to establish uh, Kharijite settlements and cities and they established some of the most important towns in this area, such as Fez and Sijilmasa. These became important um, trading towns. Now, of course, the Kharijites are going to be at odds with the Umayyad leadership. And so already this is exacerbating the sense of rebellion. So now we have Berbers who are they're still rebels against the central political authority, but they're Muslim rebels. And, you know, spoiler alert here, they're going to end up taking over eventually. 
But anyway, to get back to the Kharijites, uh, their states were very much oriented on trade, in particularly the trade across the desert into sub-Saharan Africa. And this is the way that a lot of the Berbers become settled into cities and towns along the trade routes. They establish a lot of these um, cities and towns. And also, a lot of them uh, flee to Spain, and they establish communities there. So this is pretty much what the situation in this area of North Africa, the Maghreb, looks like in the early centuries. Now, we talked earlier about the Fatimid Caliphate, which emerges in the 900s, and this started out in Morocco. This actually started when a Shiite missionary from Syria, who again you know, was fleeing, made his way all the way to Morocco, um, but eventually, of course, the Fatimids will become headquartered in Egypt. Now, the Fatimid state, at its greatest extent, would stretch as far west as Tunisia, but it did not control Morocco. Um, despite having its early roots there. Okay, so at this point we've been talking about small city-states in Morocco and Algeria that are not a part of the larger Fatimid or Abbasid empires, or even the Umayyad Caliphate, which is established in Spain. Okay, so that's great. How do they get from the desert to establishing one of the most important dynasties of the time? Well, the real catalyst for this is the declining situation in Spain itself. Now, as we have discussed, the so-called uh, Spanish Reconquista, or Reconquest, uh, and you know we've discussed that name. Uh, but this begins almost immediately after the Muslim conquest, and it takes a very, very long time to conquer the Iberian Peninsula. So while in the east we have these uh, situations where there are invasions and conquests that go incredibly rapidly, uh, like the Mongol invasion, which is extremely fast. Even the, the Crusader invasion and the establishment of Crusader states happens very fast. Um, in the West, in Spain, the process from the high point of the Muslim state in Spain, which stretches all the way to the, the borders of southern France, to the famous defeat of Granada in 1492, when the, the last Muslims are driven out of Spain. This takes a very long time. I mean, it takes about 600 years. And it's very, it's slow going. One, one city at a time, they change hands a lot. Okay, so the time we're interested in here, the establishment of the first Berber dynasty, which is our subject today, is right about um, the 11th century. We're talking about the year 1000 and, and so forth. Uh, so basically, we're about three and a half centuries after the establishment of Islam. And we're really about less than a century before the first Crusades begin. So about half of Spain has been lost at this time to the what, what I will call the Spanish uh, reconquest. Um, they're, they're not identified as Spanish until um, much later, but uh, let's, just, let's call them that for now, uh, just to make it simple. Okay, so in the year 1031, the Umayyad Caliphate in Cordoba, which has lasted for um, a long time, it has lasted for about three and a half centuries, and was one of the the great states in Europe. In fact, Cordoba was the largest city in Europe. But they, they have been losing ground constantly. And in the year 1031, the Umayyad Caliphate falls in a civil war. Now, what happens after this is that Muslim Spain becomes divided into independent states or emirates. These will become known as the Ta'ifa kingdoms. Now, a Ta'ifa in, in Arabic is a sect, and this does not refer, in this case, specifically to religious sects, 
But what we're saying here is that these are all separate states and they are ruled by a variety of different groups. So there are groups that identify differently. Uh, there are former Umayyads who continue to rule city-states. There are Berbers who have, you know, of course they came as part of the army. And so they've got their own states. Uh, there are interestingly what are called the Slavs who are basically imported warriors. They were brought in as Christian warriors. Now, despite being called Slavs, I mean, because people weren't really very technical on their origins, they probably came from Germany, most of them. But they become another uh, separate group. And we know what happens when you bring in outside warriors. They establish um, their own political control. Okay, so we've got all these different... Uh, so-called Taifa kingdoms. And I mean, kingdom is a really um, a bit of an exaggeration. They are, for the most part, city-states. Now, it's going to be when the uh, city of Toledo in Spain, of course, famous for Toledo steel, uh, the famous swords, they will fall to a Christian conquest in the year 1085. It's about 50 years after the Umayyad uh, Caliphate has fallen. I mean, the Umayyad uh, Caliphate in Spain, specifically. At this point, the Muslim states of Al-Andalus realize they need help from outside. Okay, they've been fighting amongst themselves. They have, you know, some of them have been making alliances with the enemy, uh, probably downplaying it. But when they lose a big, important city like Toledo, okay, they realize we need help. Well, who are they going to turn to? They look at the Muslim world. I mean, the, the Fatimids are far away. They are Shiite. Uh, the Abbasid state is very weakened by this point. Who are you going to turn to? Well, we have a rising power of a, a fairly new Muslim Berber state in Morocco um, that gains their attention. And who else are you going to turn to? That's who they turn to. They invite these Berbers in, and this is going to become the establishment of the first Berber dynasty in Spain. Now, like I say, this is a fairly new Muslim Berber state, which is um, established in the city of Marrakesh, or Marrakesh as it's uh, sometimes called in English in Morocco. A very, very uh, famous place. It is the uh, has the largest number of tourists in Morocco, someplace you should definitely go visit. Uh, but they establish this, and this becomes their capital. But of course, it's important to say that this one particular dynasty has been newly established. Berbers have been uh, controlling this area for centuries. Okay, anyway, uh, this new uh, Muslim Berber state is known as the Al-Murabatin. And Murabat, Rabata means to, to tie together, to unite. And that's what they mean, the, the ones who are, you know, committed, tied together. Al-Murabatin. Now, just point out that this name is usually Romanized into English as Al-Muravid. And we know a lot of words get, um, you know, Romanized this way. This one, however, I mean, it doesn't sound that much like the original. So when you hear El Morabatin, you may not automatically realize that that is El Moravid and so forth. I am going to use that term because it is used so heavily throughout all the scholarship and all the history. I will use the term um, El Moravid. Okay. So anyway, uh, they become a very strong. Uh, they are growing. They have established control over... Uh, much of what is today Morocco and their reputation becomes known even in Spain. And so with no one else to turn to, they're invited in to come fight the enemy. Now, one thing you've heard me say over and over again in this series is when you outsource your defense to someone else, you know what happens. They're going to take over. And so this is how we get the first Berber dynasty in Spain. But anyway, who were these folks and how did they manage to go from being a Berber desert tribe to becoming a, a well-established empire? Well, the El Moravid movement begins among the Sanhaja 
Berbers of southern Morocco, today Mauritania, in about the 11th century. So it's it's fairly new um, coming together at the time that the, they are invited in to help rescue Spain. Now the Sanhaja are known, among other things, for a distinctive veil that they wear. I mean, it's called a veil. It doesn't really doesn't look like this. Uh, but what they do, it's called the litham, and it is like a scarf that men wear, and it covers the the face, covers the mouth. Uh, now you have probably seen pictures of Berbers in the desert, and I mean, you just probably thought, you know, they wrapped a scarf around their mouth so they didn't breathe in a lot of. Uh, dust and sand. Kind of looks like the stereotypical uh, bandit in, in Western movies, what they wear. Okay, so uh, what, what's significant is that the men actually wear this. So as the Almoravids become more powerful and eventually become the ruling class, though, the Litham plays a very important symbolic role. I mean, of course, when they're in the desert, they wear this just for uh, practical purposes. And even if you go to the Arabian Peninsula today, if you go to Jordan, if you go to Saudi Arabia and you go out with the Bedouin, uh, you're going to see that they do the same thing. They take the kufiya or the gutra, which is the very famous um, Arab headdress that men wear, and you know you wrap it around your mouth. Why? Because you don't want to get sand and dust all over you. However, once they become a political power, the Almoravids move into cities. Eventually, they move into Spain where they don't need this for the practical purpose of covering the mouth. This now becomes a symbol. And so there actually become laws saying who can wear this and who cannot. And um, we get um, actually specific uh, guidelines put out by rulers and by jurists telling people who are not part of the Almoravid ruling class uh, not to go around wearing these because what's happening is troublemakers are saying, hey, you can basically cover up your face with this scarf and you know go rob and steal and do things like that. Okay, so this becomes a symbol. Now, interestingly enough, with any symbol, uh, it can be taken two different ways. So on the one hand, the Almoravids themselves, um, they're very proud of the Litham, and they claim that this is evidence of their lineage going back to the original believers in the Arabian Peninsula. Now, as I said, uh, they have drawn up a lineage that says that I mean, they actually uh, come from the original believers back in biblical times. We discussed this a few lessons ago when we were talking about the Shu'biya movement, the sort of um, national and ethnic pride movement. But this was a big, uh, a big thing, and we find it throughout the Muslim world, and you, I mean, you find it in the Christian world and everywhere else, is that people who don't have a very clear lineage to, say, the Prophet Muhammad and his family, uh, they trace their lineage at least back to the uh, Arabian Bedouin, and the tradition becomes this idea that back before the coming of Islam, going way back into the, the early, early biblical period, uh, back to the time of Abraham, that the people of Arabia were followers of the, quote, true monotheism, not the distorted stuff that becomes known as Judaism by Abraham and his sons and so forth, but true, pure monotheism, uh, the Hanifs, they're called. And in this retelling of history, uh, most of the Arabian Peninsula are practitioners of this true monotheism. And so the actual pagan history, which I mean, is fairly well documented that the, the Bedouin tribe were pagans, this gets shrunken down more and more to say, okay, it was just a very brief period of time right before the Prophet Muhammad, and before that, uh, it was the true believers that were occupying the Arabian Peninsula. Anyway, the point is that whole idea, that whole sort of legend, uh, claiming that was something that was already popular 
And so the El Maravids, who are, I mean, they're Berber, they're coming out of the desert, they obviously do not have a relation to the ruling class in Islam. They claim, oh no, actually, we migrated from the Arabian Peninsula centuries and centuries ago. And what's the evidence? We have this litham, this cloth that we wear across our face. And what do the people of the Arabian Peninsula wear? Well, they, they wear the kufia or the gutra over their head. It's kind of sim, you know, it's similar. Therefore, this shows that you know that's where we came from. Okay. Anyway, they use that to claim their legitimacy. The other version of this, though, their opponents who look at them wearing this litham. Again, in the cities of Spain, no longer out in the desert, they say that they're mixing gender roles because we have men now veiling themselves like women. And this just shows how messed up they are, right? Um, and so the, this goes back and forth, but the main point is the El Maravids uh, become the people who are in charge. They have the most effective army. They're winning the battles. Uh, they are controlling things, and so their narrative is the one that's going to um, win out, at least for a while. Okay, so anyway, back to the transformation of this tribe into a ruling elite. Well, you we said they were, you know, a a fairly powerful Bedouin tribe of the. Um, the Western Sahara Desert, but the traditional event that is usually marking the beginning of the El Maravid state is the pilgrimage of Yahya ibn Ibrahim, who was one of the tribal leaders. Uh, at this point, even the Sanhaja tribes were not united. They had several different tribes. Okay, so this is about the year 1035, we think, and so just slightly after the Umayyad state in Spain has fallen, things are getting pretty bad in Spain. Okay, so Yahya bin Ibrahim is going to make uh, the pilgrimage all the way from Morocco to Mecca. And he's going to pass through some of the great cities of North Africa. Because remember, it's, it's a long trip at that time. You don't take a plane. And he is said to have stopped at several of these great cities and realized how far behind his people were. So when he goes through Tangier, he goes through Kairouan, um, and goes through Cairo, and so forth. Especially when he goes to Kairouan, which was the major Muslim city of what is today Tunisia. But this was the site of one of the first universities in the world. And it was, of course, one of the big centers of Muslim learning, Al-Azhar in um, Cairo being the other one. And so he goes there. He realizes that his people are, in, in his opinion, are behind on a lot of things. And so he asks for help. He asks them, please send someone to come back with me uh, to help educate our people and so forth. And so it said that he was sent a scholar named Abdullah ibn Yasin. Now, Abdullah also seems to have been a pretty aggressive and effective political organizer. So he didn't just go there and teach them Islamic law. So, yes, he does that. Uh, and he starts to uh, very strictly apply the Maliki law, which was, is the dominant uh, form of Islamic law, Sunni law, in North Africa. But he also sets out to unite the various Berber tribes and also to convert the non-Muslim Berber tribes in the area. Now, it is often claimed of the Berber El Maravids that they weren't really well-versed in Islam and Arabic at the time. Now, it is true that the first generation of El Maravid rulers uh, don't speak much Arabic, and the founder of the dynasty is known to have used a translator, Okay, and they do have to bring in a jurist like Abdullah ibn Yasin from the outside. But they are going to become very zealous in the application of this. And the later generations, of course, they are going to speak Arabic. They will sponsor Arabic scholars and jurists 
and the the Berbers and the outsiders who are brought in are going to start to mix and to overlap. Okay, uh, so one of the things that comes out of this movement is that the uh, the El Moravids develop a strong belief in the need to unite under one Muslim leader, which they call at the time Amir al-Haq, which means uh, Prince of the Truth. Now, this is going to be a, a constant theme in all of the Berber dynasties, the Almoravids and the next one that comes after the, uh, the Almohads. In fact, both of their names mean to unite. So they're going to realize we need one leader to bring these Berber tribes together. Well, they have great success at this. And in fact, you'll remember we talked about Ibn Khaldun, certainly the most famous uh, Muslim historian, the great pioneer of historical study. And if you remember, when we talked about Ibn Khaldun. He was from this region. He's from Morocco. Um, Remember his basic theory involves the nomadic people versus the city people. And he talks about how the nomads come together and they have this force of asabiyah, which is this sort of unit cohesion that makes them powerful warriors willing to fight and die for one another. And they conquer the city folk who have you know, become kind of fat and lazy. And this is his basic model that he uses to explain history. Well... Ibn Khaldun, who was from this area, so the nomads that he actually knew of were Berbers, and it's this particular group that was one of the inspirations that really got his attention and gave him the idea of the theory. So whether you agree with Ibn Khaldun's overall cycle of history, and some, some historians don't, a lot of historians say it only applies to certain areas, to certain situations. In any case, you definitely have to say that the El Moravid conquest of North Africa is definitely going to fit his model because this is what he based the model on. Okay, so they are coming together and uniting the Sanhaja Berber tribes of southern Morocco. And they're doing this with a strict application of uh, Maliki Islamic law. And this is what the Almoravids are going to be famous for is their zeal and their strictness in applying the Islamic law. And it's also a fairly common uh, theme. We see this a lot in throughout the entire Middle East is that uh, when nomadic peoples are coming and taking over cities, they tend to be a lot more strict than the city people because, you know, the People living jammed in a city tend to be a lot more lax and a lot more liberal about things. I mean, we see the same thing definitely happening with the Wahhabis in Saudi Arabia. Interestingly enough, it's not their strictness that is going to do in the Almoravids. As strict and as zealous as they are, um, their dynasty is going to be fairly short-lived uh, because they're going to be overthrown by another Berber group, who is generally seen as being even more zealous. So this gives you the idea of the, the direction things are going in. Okay, so anyway, back to the specifics. So what's happening? About the year 1070, okay, so we're, we're talking, you know, probably about 30 years after the Almoravids have start, started coming together, Remember their name. This is not a family name that they're using. The El Marabatin means literally the ones who have come together. So that's that's what it's referring to. Uh, they established the city of Marrakesh in southern Morocco. Now, if you've been to Morocco, and you, you know one of the things that Morocco is famous for as a tourist destination is the diversity of the culture. I mean, you go to Tangier, which is on the northern coast, and by the way, you. It, if you've seen the Bourne movies, this is the city that's um, featured in the Bourne movies, the third one. You go to Fez, which is like the classical medieval Arab city, which is also it's used in a lot of movies for that purpose. Uh, Casablanca is very European. Marrakesh is a very different feel altogether. I mean, you 
definitely don't need to be told that this is the Berber Desert City. I mean, you have snake charmers in the middle of the city. It it definitely has this um, very Saharan Berber feel to it. Okay, so they established Marrakesh, which is a, a lovely city. And by the late 11th century, Marrakesh is going to dominate Morocco and bring a sense of unity to all of Morocco that it didn't have before. So they are going to conquer these other cities. And they are basically going to impose their strict version of Islam. And um, it's going to be fairly well received. Now, we've got that going on in Morocco. As I've said, um, in Spain, the Ta'ifa kingdoms realize they're losing ground to the Christians big time. Um, They're a bunch of scattered, non-united little city-states. And so in the year 1085, after the major loss of the city of Toledo, they're going to look around and say, who can save us? Well, you have this group that is basically just united all of Morocco, uh, which is spreading out. Um, They're known, obviously, for being very effective warriors. That's how they've united the whole uh, kingdom. And they're known for being very zealous in their application of Islam and Islamic law. So they sound like a pretty good candidate to bring in to come save you from this Christian Reconquista, which is very, very religiously uh, zealous. Okay, so that's what happens. And this is the way we end up with a kingdom that stretches from Mauritania all the way through northern Spain. Okay, so let's put that in the even bigger context of what's happening in the entire Islamic world. Now, understand we've been jumping around geographically in these episodes, so you can, you can lose track of the dates. So let's look at what's happening in the East. Well, the first crusade is in the year 1096, and this is a devastating blow. It's kind of a wake-up call. Um, We're in the year 1085, so it's just a few years before this. Now, Western Europe, of course, had been the sort of the the sick man of the world. Uh, They had been in in shambles for centuries since the fall of the Roman Empire. And the Muslim states have primarily been battling the Byzantine Empire on and off. Mostly it's been off. Mostly they have an uneasy stalemate with them after the first attempts uh, to conquer uh, Constantinople. We have, you know, the annual summer campaigns. It's like a thing. But for the most part, relations between the Byzantine Empire and uh, the Muslim Empire are, I won't say good, but they have definitely an understanding between them. Okay. But that's going to change very quickly. I mean, we've seen Europe is getting back together. Um, They're starting to build the first kingdoms in the year 800 is when Charlemagne basically establishes the Frankish kingdom, which is generally uh, set as the date at the beginning of modern European history. And so we're going to see when armies from France are going to come land in Palestine. And, of course, the Spanish are conquering much of Spain. And so things have definitely uh, taken a a different turn from the early Islamic centuries where we have this idea of Dar al-Islam, the idea that Islam was going to continue to expand and to conquer until it covered the entire world. I mean, it, it seemed like that was the way things were going to go. I mean, if you were watching during the first couple of centuries of Islamic history, that definitely looked like uh, the way things were happening. So the losses that happen in Spain, um, the disorder that's happening in the, in the East, these are seen as signs of local weakness. Now, after... I mean, centuries and centuries of this, and you know, in the 21st century, we look at it all very differently. We see this is the beginning of a tremendous European Western conquest. The age of colonialism is going to come. They're not seeing this at this time. 
Okay, so things are really going to go downhill in a few years. But if you're uh, the Almoravids, you're looking at Spain and you're seeing that, well, they're just messed up because they're fighting amongst themselves and because they've gotten very slack in their application of Islamic law. And so we're going to go in there and bail them out. Okay. All right. So the Almoravid leader at this time is the very important Yusuf ibn Tashfin. And he is going to be the one who is going to go into Spain to be um, invited to go in there and is going to establish the dynasty in Spain as well. Now, remember, again, in this concept, the Almoravids believe very much in this idea of united leadership of the Muslim community. Okay, so Ibn Tashfin is not just seeing himself as a Berber from Morocco who's going over to Spain to help out. I mean, they definitely believe the destiny is to, I mean, we've just united all these tribes. We've united all of Morocco, um, which is, you know, much bigger than our one little tribe. Now we're going to Spain. We're going to put things back on track there. Um, I mean, again, this idea of Darul Islam, he pretty much sees that this is, this is going to go on forever until the whole world is you know, brought under control. Okay, so what happens in Spain? Well, the major threat in El Andalus was the Castilian king Alfonso VI, who ruled for a very long 30 years. Now, in reality, although we talk about the, the Castilians and the Muslims fighting, the reality is, um, as, as we find everywhere, um, these Ta'ifa kingdoms had all sorts of alliances built up and in many cases many of the kingdoms were uh, allying with Alfonso against other Muslims and I mean that's just the way it is it's the same thing's going to happen in Palestine uh, with the Crusader kingdoms in reality um, Alfonso had become so strong that many of the Taifa kingdoms the ones closest to him were paying tribute to him they were acknowledging him effectively as their overlord and he was still raiding them whenever he needed to okay and so they had to keep imposing more and more taxes in order to pay off alfonso and this was creating a big burden on the people uh, there was definite resentment at paying tribute to this enemy of islam this is the way that toledo falls i have mentioned the fall of toledo several times in 1085 as the big event that kicks this off. This is what happens is that Toledo was basically paying, um, you know, ransom to Alfonso. Uh, one year they couldn't make the annual payment and so he conquers the city and that scares the other Muslim states. I mean, it's like being squeezed. How much is he going to ask and at some point are you not going to be able to pay him off? Furthermore, they had lost the important uh, territory of Valencia to the famous warlord Rodrigo Diaz. Now, you may know Rodrigo Diaz as El Cid, or in French, it's Le Cid. He's a subject of I mean, a, a lot of famous stories, poems, operas, and plays. Charlton Heston plays him in a movie. Uh, he appears in the video game Total War. Okay, I mean, that's you know, uh, pretty big. The name Al-Sid comes from the Arabic Asayid, which means the Lord. Um, so how does this, I mean, essentially Spanish Christian... He's really a mercenary, although the stories uh, portray him as a crusader. Uh, he, he's pretty much a mercenary who fights with for whichever side pays him. Uh, but how does he end up getting an Arabic title uh, as the Lord? Well, of course, uh, Arabic-speaking states are acknowledging him. They're paying tribute to him. Okay, so this is the situation that we have. Now, 
if you are living in Spain, uh, you're a Muslim living in these Ta'ifa kingdoms, you can see this picture I've just painted really shows how weak you are. I mean, coming from the idea of Darul Islam and, you know, we being the, the conquering people to you have all these divided little kingdoms which are fighting amongst each other. Um, they're getting thrashed left and right. They're basically groveling, paying off protection money to the, the Christian conquerors, you know, basically not to come beat them up and they're still getting beaten up. And I mean, they just feel so weak, so powerless. And here you hear about these um, really zealous Berbers in Morocco who have you know, vanquished all their enemies. And this is like, okay, now we're going to turn things around. And that's definitely the way it appears. So it is the ruler of the city of Sevilla, El Mu'tamid ibn Abad, who appeals to Ibn Tashfin to help uh, after the loss of his city. He still controlled part of Spain. Uh, he actually controls the historical capital of Cordoba, uh, but he's been, I mean, he's lost Sevilla. He is effectively a vassal of King Alfonso. I mean, he's even father-in-law of Alfonso's concubine. Uh, and, and so he, he realizes that paying tribute, marrying into Alfonso's family, it's not doing him any good. I mean, this guy is just going to squeeze you for all the money he can, then he's going to come take you over. I mean, he's just sort of like a, um, uh, a bully, or at least that's the way it seems. He's going to appeal for someone to come in and take his side. Now, if the name El Mu'tamid sounds a little bit like an Abbasid name, it is. He was actually a member of the Abbasid family. And this is one of the many factions that ruled a little part of Al-Andalus. So, I mean, we've talked uh, throughout this of how the Umayyads controlled Spain and the Abbasids never controlled it. But by this time, the time of the Taifa kingdoms, it's like everybody's got a turf. So even, even an Abbasid prince basically has got a piece of turf over there, as do Slavs, as do, as do I mean, pretty much everybody. Okay, so... We do have to kind of put this in perspective here. So here's a guy who was working for the Spanish king until he couldn't afford to buy him off anymore. Okay, so he figures that, well, I'm going to ally with the up-and-coming El Moravids was the best option to keep from losing everything. Okay, so this is not exactly um, religious zeal here that he's having a vision, you know, we have to go defend Islam. I mean, basically, he was willing to work with Alfonso when it was to his advantage. Now he's seeing, I can't afford to deal with Alfonso anymore. I need, I need to ally myself with somebody else. Let's go with this guy. Now, despite how powerful the El Moravids were, they still needed El Mu'tamid for help. Because remember, they are basically a, a desert kingdom. Uh, they've only recently made their way to the coast. They have no navy. They've got to get across the water to get to Spain. Okay, so Al Matamid has ships. Um, his army's not that strong, but he can provide transport for the Berber army to get to Spain. Okay, so um, they do this. Uh, the Almoravid army um, hands Alfonso a major defeat at the Battle of Zalaka, which becomes greatly celebrated. People hear about this and they start to see the Almoravids as uh, the people who are going to come bail us out. Now, despite that success, despite uh, defeating Alfonso, uh, Ibn Tashfin did not set about to take over immediately. In fact, after 1085, after coming in to, to bail out uh, El Mu'tamid that one time, he wasn't sure that he wanted to stay in Spain. I mean, the place was a mess, okay? Uh, his interests were expanding into the desert. That's where he came from. So he goes back to Morocco. He continues the conquest to the south, and they get as far as Ghana, okay? So that's pretty far south. Um, but... 
the Taifa kingdoms are, I mean, they are really a mess. Uh, and even though they've defeated or they've brought someone in to defeat Alfonso once, it goes back to the same thing. They have to call Ibn Tashfin back four times to fight the Christian forces. Now, at some times, Al-Mu'tamid uh, allies with Christian states against other Muslims. At other times, he allies with the Muslim states against other Christians. Okay, so this is, you know, we're not talking about the, you know, a very um, clear religious zeal. I mean, you can see this is basically survival politics. Well, you can understand Ibn Tashfin's perspective on this. I mean, this is a guy who was all about uniting the people together, right? Al-Murabatin, that's what the name means, right? Bringing all these Muslim peoples together under his leadership. He really believes in Dar al-Islam. Uh, he really believes in uniting this Muslim community into one. And his empire is based on a very strict application of Islamic law. Well, in Spain, you've got these Muslim states that not only can't work together, uh, they are perfectly willing to declare allegiance to non-Muslim powers. They're only interested in jihad when they get in trouble and they need to be bailed out. Okay. Worse, some of the Ta'ifa rulers begin to think that the Almoravids are a bigger threat than the Christians. I mean, they're, again, they're looking at who, who's going to do the best for us. So they look at Alfonso, they look at Ibn Tashfin, and think, you know, actually, we'll get a better deal from Alfonso, and so they ally with Alfonso. Well, to someone like Ibn Tashfin, who is now getting old, uh, it's said that he's 100 years old by his last campaign, um, he probably wasn't, but the idea is that, I mean, if people can say this and get away with it, it means he was getting pretty old. And so he realizes he's a true believer. He's a true believer in uniting the Muslim world, and he sees he's getting towards the end of his life. And so basically, as one of his final acts, he wants to get rid of all these jokers and establish what he sees as real Muslim control in Spain. So he takes over. And, I mean, they're really in no position to stop him. Uh, so by his death, the El Moravid state stretches from southern Mauritania all the way down to Ghana, all the way up to Zaragoza in northern Spain. It's almost up to where the French border is today. Now, in perspective, this is not Umayyad size big, okay? It's not that size. But compared to the mess that was there before, this is pretty impressive. And it looks like things are getting back on track. Well, by the time of his conquest in Al-Andalus, Ibn Tashfin has taken the title of Amir al-Muslimin, which, like it sounds, means the leader of the Muslims. Now, this title is significant for the justification of his rule because the Khalif is traditionally known as Amir al-Mu'minin, which means commander of the faithful. Now, to us, these titles probably don't sound much different, and linguistically they could be interchangeable. But since the Khalif has already laid claim to one of them, Ibn Tashfin is carefully establishing his relationship by picking a very impressive title, one that's almost as good as the Khalif's title, which is it's an obvious imitation of it, but it's different. So, whereas the Fatimids in Egypt, they're claiming they've got their own Khalif uh, who, who is separate, who is not subordinate to the Khalif in Baghdad. Well, uh, Ibn Tashfin is not doing that. He is establishing the fact that he is subordinate to the Khalif in Baghdad, but he's like really, really high up there. Now the story is uh, supposedly um, that his subordinate leaders came to him and said that because of his important role, because he now ruled this entire area, he should be known as Amir al-Mu'minin. But the 
Ibn Tashfin says, no, only the Khalif can be that, and so he becomes Amir al-Muslimin. So he's like being a, a deputy to the Khalif in Baghdad. Now, as we've mentioned, that by this time, and we're talking right about the, the time of the First Crusades, uh, the Abbasids have basically been reduced to figureheads. But the figurehead is useful for giving you the blessing to make you people know that you're the real boss. So in the East, things are really being run by the Seljuk Turks, as we've said. Um, but they use the Abbasid Khalif as a rubber stamp to give them their legitimacy. Okay? Well, Ibn Tashfin is basically putting himself on the same level, at least for the Western part of the Muslim world. Okay, this is further sealed uh, when a noble uh, from the Almoravid area, uh, Ibn al-Arabi, he goes to Baghdad and formally pledges Almoravid loyalty to the Khalif, who accepts it, which is I mean, significant, uh, and he makes uh, Ibn Tashfin's title official. It has been debated by historians whether Ibn al-Arabi was actually sent there by Ibn Tashfin, as his ambassador or whether he saw this was an opportunity to make himself useful and so he just jumped on it, did it on his own initiative uh, and then basically becomes the Almoravid ambassador to Baghdad. In any case, it did fit in well with Ibn Tashfin's plans. Well, things are going great so far. Uh, Ibn Tashfin is going to die. Uh, his successors will be uh, somewhat weaker but like we've seen with pretty much every kingdom we've looked at, things are going to start to get weak as they start to hollow out the military. That's where the problem really happened. I mean, that's how the Turks ended up essentially taking over the east. Well, the Berber elite, who were the core of this army, are going to form less and less of it. And you know what happens when that happens, so I don't have to repeat it again. Um... But partially, and this is really part of the inspiration for Ibn Khaldun's theory that the you know, really tough warrior Bedouin settle down and become lazy and weak city dwellers. I mean, a lot of it has to do with what he's watching happen to them. Or, I mean, he, he comes centuries later, but what he sees uh, through the history. Um, in truth... It's not like they had a lot of options because the Sanhaja Berbers, who are the core of this group, they're spread pretty thin. There aren't enough of them to garrison all the places they've taken over. This is the same thing that happened to the Romans. It happens to anybody. Uh, you take over a big empire, you, you have to bring in people uh, to help you garrison it. And so... Uh, He's still got the fights going against the Christian conquerors, and there's still a lot of rebellions going on from the Taifa kingdoms and the Berbers back home. So they're going to have to bring in people from outside. They're going to bring in Berbers from outside their own tribes. They're going to depend on African slaves, and they're going to depend on Christians, who they're going to bring in. Now, they make a point of using the Christian soldiers in Africa instead of fighting in Spain against other Christians, but they're starting to dilute their army. Now, in general, though, uh, the Berber dynasties are often seen as a low point for Muslim relations with other religions. Now, this we have to put in perspective is in comparison with, say, the high point of Umayyad rule in Al-Andalus, in the glories of Cordoba. Uh, we talked a lot about how this was a great time for cooperation between the religions, at least at the elite level, the level of the scholars and so forth. We have some of the greatest uh, Jewish scholars of all time uh, who are working in Al-Andalus. Certainly, it's way better than what's going on in Europe. Well, things are going to change during the Almoravid period, but we have to remember the context has also changed. By this time, the Muslims have been steadily losing ground to the Christian conquests. There are shifting alliances going on. There are you know, 
Ta'ifa states making alliances with Christians against other Muslim states. So yes, uh, the Almoravids did really come to power and gain their fame by being more strict on the application of religious law, but it's also a time now where there is a lot of fighting going on between religions, so uh, the context is very different. Now, as we've discussed, the Christian and Jewish minorities throughout the Muslim world lived under what's called the, the Vimi system, which basically means a contract or agreement. And this meant that they had their own communities, their own courts, their own legal systems. Of course, they could practice their own religion. Um, they weren't forced to do a lot of the other things that the Muslims had to do, particularly serve in the army. In exchange, they paid the jizya, which is the special tax. Now, of course, the jizya gets a bad rap today. It's it's made to look pretty bad. But in medieval context, um, this is not such a bad deal because this tax is intended as compensation for not serving in the military. Uh, Muslims had to serve in the army, but we didn't want to force Christians to have to do this. And so they got out of it, but paid the tax as compensation. Well, obviously, uh, even though they're not allowed to join the army or not forced to join the army, you don't want them allying with the enemy. But this is what's been happening in Spain, right? We have Christian subjects supporting the Spanish forces. Again, as I said, it's not usually for religious reasons, but because of the shifting alliances. But now we have the Almoravids have essentially pushed back the Christian forces. They've taken over all of Spain. But what are you going to do with these people who made alliances with Alfonso, who you know, basically supported uh, the Christian states? Well, we're going to look at it as they violated the terms of that agreement. They have lost their right to protection. And this is one of the big changes. Entire Christian communities were moved from Spain to Morocco. And this is why we have Christian communities today in places like Marrakesh and Meknes that had been resettled during the time. Now, every indication is once they got there, they continued to live as normal. They had their own churches, their own courts, and so forth. But there was no Christian invasion for them to support. Now, there were also some notorious massacres of Jews, and the biggest one and most infamous, it was in Granada. Now, this one, like most of them, seems to have started off as political fights. Uh, and this is fairly typical. We had a Jewish vizier or a chief minister uh, who was deposed by his rivals. There's all kinds of political intrigues going on. This stuff's happening all the time. But this guy happens to be Jewish. So when that happens, the rivals stir up anti-Jewish sentiment and use that to wipe out this guy's support base and all his allies. Well, that turns into a general massacre against Jews, which supports their political uh, agenda, the agenda of these rivals. But this is what happens. Now, these, of course, were unusual events. I mean, this is not the norm. In general, relations were fairly good. But we shouldn't confuse this generally good relations and tolerance by medieval standards with complete equality. Okay? So by 11th century standards and compared to what's going on in Europe, it's way, way better. By 21st century standards, no, I mean definitely it's not. But another issue was that the Sanhaja Berbers had not encountered many Christians in North Africa, although they did trade with some Jewish communities. So when they take over in Al-Andalus, uh, we see a lot of instructions going out telling local officials to enforce the Dhimi rules. Things like Muslim women going into churches, wine drinking, mixing and intermarrying of religions, which were supposed to be prohibited, we see them telling uh, the local authorities and the local jurists to enforce them. So what we definitely uh, can deduce from this is that although there were rules set down on the treatment of the religious minorities, again, it's by no means equal treatment. 
Okay, but it's also, I mean, tolerant. It's not like if you you can cross into uh, France or England and, and be killed for being Jewish. Okay, but what appears to be happening is in Spain. Uh, things had gotten so cozy and the relations had gotten so good that most of these roles were basically being ignored. Uh, one of the things we see specifically is that the Almoravids declared that Muslims could not be servants for Christians and Jews. And specifically, they mentioned being bath attendants and cleaning their latrines. Now, this is before um, we had flush toilets and all that, so that's pretty nasty. But what that implies though, means it was going on before they got there. So you had Christian and Jewish officials and merchants who were so powerful and had so much money that they had Muslims working as servants for them, which is a complete no-go uh, according to the law, but it wasn't being enforced. Well, when the Almoravids get there, it's going to be enforced. Um, it, if you're one of these people, it can end up making a big difference. But technically, the Almoravids are not making up new rules when they do this. Okay. So at this point, we have a thriving Berber dynasty from Ghana to the north of Spain, but it's only going to last for a century. But interestingly, the challenge is not going to come from outside forces, not from forces who think that these folks are too strict but from another Berber faction, the Al-Muahids, who are actually very similar, but are known for being more zealous and more strict. And their biggest complaint against the Al-Muravids is that these guys are too slack. And they're going to be our subject next time. So thank you very much for joining us on this trip out west to Morocco and Spain. We will be here for uh, several more episodes talking about the culture and the impact that these dynasties have. It's very important. We thank you so much for joining us, for your kind attention. Thank you for all your kind comments and likes on Facebook, on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't, please give us a rating. Uh, please give us a like because that's what enables us to stay on air free of charge and free of advertisements. So thank you so much for joining us. We hope to see you next time. Shukran jazilin wa ma'asalam.